So today we're sort of wrapping up my portion of the Resilient Christianity campaign. We're going through the book of 1 Peter, and we made it. We're into 1 Peter chapter 5, uh, the last uh, chapter of this book. So I'm going to give myself a pat on the back that we, <laughs> I actually got through everything. I didn't think I would at the beginning, but here we are. Um, so what, we're, what we've been saying every week about resilience and why we need to be resilient Christians is our culture has changed. It is shifting uh, from the predominant values, the predominant virtues that our culture uh, in general acknowledges as good are shifting and moving away from Christian values and Christian virtues and Christian truths. And so as this change happens, and it, for many of us, it feels like it has happened very quickly, and it's happened in our lifetime, right? Which that's kind of what's happening with technology and culture is things shift very quickly now, whereas in previous eras, previous generations, they would change much more slowly over generations. Now it's like, I can't keep up with what's going on. So as our culture shifts, what we as Christians need to do is develop this resilient faith because we've been really comfortable in the past, right? We've, uh, if the culture has the same values and the same truth claims and similar ideals of what it looks like to be a good, flourishing human being, then we get comfortable. And what happens is then we get soft, okay? And so many of us are having to now develop this resilience. We have to develop this thick skin, right, that perhaps hasn't been been there in the past. And so, how do we do that? Well, the book of 1 Peter is written to help Christians be resilient in a culture that is very antagonistic to the Christian faith. So we have a lot to learn. We can learn a ton from the book of 1 Peter, and I hope you've been encouraged as we've been walking through this from the theology of it all the way to the practical, now do this. Um, I've been very encouraged by it. I love this book. It's one of my favorites. I could probably say that about every book in the Bible, though. So here we go. Okay, we're into 1 Peter, and we're going to start in verse 5. So um, he's going to begin chapter 5, which we ended up at the end of chapter 4 last week. He begins chapter 5 by first talking to the elders of the churches that he's writing to. So we're not covering that, but it's in the devotional. But just as a teaser, I'm going to say that uh, the things that he says about shepherds, about elders about pastors, is there to be shepherds, okay? Um, so as a church culture, we need to really reframe our perspective of church leaders from the, what is the current model, which is the, we would call like the pastor influencer, the pastor CEO, who's running this mega business, right? Like that's kind of our current model in the evangelical church world. We need to reframe it to Pastor Shepherd, as the Bible does. Okay, so I'm just putting out a teaser for the devotional. I'm not preaching on that today. But it's really, really important that we all, as a culture, because we exist in this ecosystem, it's certainly convicting for me to read that. But for all of us, it's, it should convict us to say, what are we looking for in a pastor? Are we looking for an influencer, a CEO, or are we looking for a shepherd? Okay. Those are dramatically different images, <laughs> right, in your head. And so we need to reframe that in our world today. Anyways, now we're going to go to just what he says to all of them, both the congregants of the church and to the leaders of the church. He, he has a number of imperatives that he gives to all of them, and we're going to walk through those today, beginning here in verse 5. He says, clothe yourselves, all of you, okay, as I said, this is for all of us, 
with humility towards one another. Four, quote, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him. Stand firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by the brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Amen is right. Okay, so let's walk through this uh, just bit by bit. And again, if you're new to LifeBridge, what we tend to what we do is we walk through the text together. We'll sing a little bit and praise, worship God together, and then I'll come back up and apply it later. So he says, first, clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility towards one another. Towards one another. Again, this is written to all of the church. This is all of us. We are to clothe ourselves to put on humility. Now remember, humility, as we've talked about, it might have been last week, a few weeks ago, the weeks are running together in my head, uh, humility was not a virtue that the Romans looked upon favorably. They viewed it as weakness. Okay, but because of the life of Jesus, Peter says, no, this is a virtue that we Christians have to have. So in this letter, he's gone through a number of virtues that the Greco-Roman culture would look at and say, yes, like we agree. So he's saying, contextualize your faith, the virtues from the culture that you can use, use, the ones that you can't, they're going to be different. Even if they look down on them, you have to live this way because Jesus is your paradigm. Jesus is your model. He's like the dotted letters that we are to trace our life around. Okay? We trace our life on Jesus, not the culture, not anybody else. Right? And he says, uh, this is a quote from Proverbs 3:34. God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Okay, that's, a, that's a bitter pill to swallow, right? That if we're prideful, if we're proud, God is against us, right? And what a just ridiculous notion. He's going to say it again here in a moment. But what a ridiculous notion for us to, like, stick our chest up to God, right? <laughs> to be like, yeah, <laughs> to be proud when we're talking about the God of the universe here. Yet in our pride, which we all struggle with, we do that all the time. But it makes, it makes no logical sense if God exists, right, that we would be proud, He's going to say it again now. Humble yourselves, therefore. So in Scripture, I think it's every time. I'm not 100% sure, but just about every time it says, humble yourself. I mean, this is what we do. Okay, there's a lot of stuff that God does that we try to take credit for and we try to do. Uh, this is something that we're supposed to do. Okay, we humble ourselves before God. He says, humble yourself, therefore, under the mighty hand of God. So when he says, under the mighty hand of God, he's referring to the mighty acts of God, the displays of God's power that we see, particularly in all of Scripture, that we've encountered at various stages of our life, right? Creation. Think of the creation account. Think of the magnitude of the cosmos, right? <laughs> God created the universe, like the galaxies that we haven't even seen yet. Like, I'm trying to make you feel small, so I hope it's working, Okay. <laughs> That's what humility means, right, in, in a sense. We'll, we'll explain it, right? Humility puts us in the proper perspective with God. Right? Okay, God, like, spoke and created the sun. <laughs> and it's massive, right? If, yeah. 
God parted the Red Sea. The 10 plagues. Ultimately, his greatest display of power is raising Jesus from the dead. So again, what a silly notion, right, for us to be prideful towards this, when this God exists at all. Even if it's not directed towards him, it's directed towards somebody else. Like, if the God that the Bible says exists, exists, pride is just a ludicrous notion. All right. It's wild that we would even consider it. <laughs> but we do all the time. <clears throat> and he says, so humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God. Why? Okay, so that at the proper time, he may exalt you. He may exalt you. So Peter has gone through this multiple times. It is in the works for Christians to be exalted, the people of God to be exalted and glorified by God. For us to, in the new creation, in eternity with him, have a new creation body to be made new, to be exalted and glorified. But the kicker is, uh, we don't do this ourselves. All right. We know folks who try to exalt themselves. We don't want to be that. We know that. And yet, we still fall prey to this all the time in our pride and thinking that we have to exalt ourselves. Remember, he's writing to people who are suffering, who have no position of power in their culture, who are being persecuted by the governing authorities. They were persecuted by the Roman Empire. They're being criticized. They're being ostracized by their community. His answer isn't fight back, get even, pick yourself up. His answer is you're acting like Jesus. Keep doing what's good and wait for God to exalt you and humble yourself. That's not what my advice would be <laughs> to these folks, right? <laughs> but Peter has been so transformed by the way of Jesus that he says, just keep living like Jesus and wait. Humble yourself and wait for God to exalt you. Whew. Wild. All right. And then he goes on, and this is one of the, this is worth memorizing for sure if you haven't memorized this yet, uh, because we live in what's been called uh, by Mark Sayers, he called the last from 2016 to actually this year, he referred to this, the, this like small segment of history as an era of anxiety. Because anxiety is so prevalent and so common in our culture that many of us struggle with anxiety. So, in the face of all the anxieties that the people he's writing to are dealing with, he says, humble yourself even further. Again, wild that he would say this to them. But then he says, casting your anxieties on him. So when you're humble, it means you cast your anxieties on God. Right? The people he's writing to, remember, they had so many reasons to be anxious. They had lost their home. They'd been exiled from most likely Rome. They lost their families, perhaps, at least their extended families, if they stayed in Rome and they had to leave. They were facing suffering and persecution in their new location. This means that they lost their inheritance. When they lost their land, they lost all of their financial stability. It's gone. It's gone. They're a sojourner. They're an immigrant. They have nothing, and they left just because they had to. They were forced out, living in a foreign country under a foreign government and being oppressed. 
and said. So this is a part of entrusting themselves to a faithful creator and doing good. If we really entrust ourselves to our faithful creator, we can cast our anxieties on him. And then he makes this beautiful statement at the end of verse 7, it's because he cares for you. Think about that. The God, the God of the universe, who we are to humble ourselves before his mighty hand, we've, ex- we've seen through scripture, we've experienced in various ways the power of God. He's beyond our greatest imagination. We can't comprehend him, and yet he cares for you. This God cares for you. So when we cast our anxieties upon him, it's not that he doesn't hear us. It's not that he's indifferent to our anxious thoughts. He cares. And he wants you to cast your anxieties on him. Be sober-minded. Be watchful. These are the next two imperatives besides to be humble. Sober-minded means what it means, right? Don't be drunk. (laughs) Don't be foggy in your thinking towards the world, towards... He's using it as an example, illustration of our spiritual life. We need to have a clear mind. Think rightly about the gospel of Jesus. Think rightly about the way of Jesus in light of the cultural pressures around you to, that are attempting to get you to conform away from Jesus to abandon him or to whatever the culture wants you to do. So thinking rightly involves knowing the truth of the gospel, humbling ourselves before, God's and before God and knowing the way of Jesus so well that when we see something that is contrary to the way of Jesus and the culture is trying to influence us to abandon Jesus and go that way, we can identify it because we're thinking clearly. Because Jesus is our paradigm. We're focused on him. We know him so well that when anything contradicts the way of Jesus, we know it. We don't just stumble into it and say, yeah, sure, let's go. Right? As you tend to do when a drunken stupor. And then be watchful, he says. Being watchful just means being alert to the spiritual battle that's raging around us. And I think that's what he's talking about, is the spiritual battle, knowing that because he next launches into the spiritual, another spiritual imperative. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Okay, so he's saying be alert, be watchful, uh, because the devil's on the prowl. And what a vivid picture of Satan and his work in the world. Okay, we, we would act very differently in our spiritual life if we thought of the devil like this. Okay, we tend to think of him as just not doing anything, just being <laughs> sleepy, right? And so we have been lured into sleeping through a spiritual battle as the devil, like a lion prowling around Roaring, looking for someone to devour. Now, it's likely that Peter has in mind here, he's using this as an image of the Roman Empire, right? Of Satan working behind the scenes and animating, empowering the Roman Empire to roar and disseminate all the Christians, right? Disperse them. At one command of Caesar, Christians had to leave Rome. So we have to be aware of how the devil works. It's not always through just like direct spiritual attacks and confrontations. It's often through the subtle manipulations of the culture and the world. Resist him then, he says. We are to resist 
the works of the devil. It means we have to be spiritually aware to know them, that we can resist them. Firm in your faith. The term firm here, it means solid in contrast to being soft and viscous. Okay, I read the lexical definition of that. I'm like, that's the point of this whole campaign of resilient Christianity. Be firm in your faith. Stand firm. Be resilient. Have thick skin. Be solid. <clears throat> so we do that by resisting the devil and standing firm in our faith. Then he says, the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. Okay, so again, right now in this time in history, it's the cultural pressure to conform to the way of the world instead of the way of Jesus. It's the cultural pressure to uh, get even, right, instead of humbling ourselves and submitting and trusting ourselves to God who judges justly. And even in this day, as today, the church is experiencing those pressures in every culture. We will never fully align with the society that we live in, nor should we ever expect to. And after you have suffered a little while, okay, remember, they're suffering. So no, he's painting this picture of even if you suffer for your entire life, it's a little while in comparison to eternity. The God of all grace, this is the God, that mighty, the God whose arm is mighty, whose power is beyond compare, is also the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ. So the suffering that we experience, even if it's for this life, and it may seem like a long time, and you say, John, you're trivializing my suffering. I don't think that's what Peter is meaning to do here. What he's doing is saying, in comparison to eternity, the eternal glory in Christ, it is a short time. We just can't grasp it yet. God has called you to this eternal glory in Christ. It's in Christ and in Christ alone and nobody else. Will himself, again, God will do this. God will exalt his people. God himself. We humble ourselves. God exalts us. God restores us. That word restore, it means to make right what is wrong. Just a beautiful picture of all of the sin that we struggle with, everything that is wrong in the world that we face every day and just breaks our heart. God will restore it and make it right. He will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. And he ends with this beautiful, just doxology of praise to God. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Band, you guys can come and get set up. We're going to begin by singing the doxology even. And so what it means is just praise God. So <laughs> the, he's writing to people who are under the thumb of the Roman Empire, the most powerful empire in the world in that day, one of the most powerful empires that the world has ever seen. And he's saying, resist the work of the devil that he is influencing through the Roman Empire. Stand against that. Stand firm in your faith because God is the one whose dominion is forever and ever. His reign is for eternity. He's not shaken, even by the Roman Empire. And so, if we serve this God and we live for this God and his kingdom is forever and his reign and his rule is forever, we should not fear the kingdom of man. Instead, we should live for God. Continue to do good in trusting ourselves to a faithful creator. So here's our big idea for today. Uh, Resilient Christians are humble. 
humility and resilience often don't go hand in hand, but that's <laughs> his point. Sober-minded and alert, they resist the devil and they wait for God to deliver them. So this is what we are called to do as Christians in a culture that is unfavorable to the Christian faith. I'll apply this when I come back up in a few moments, but let me pray for us and then we're gonna sing. Lord, God, we thank you for your word. Thank you for Jesus, your example of what it looks like to live a life of resilience, of faithfulness, of doing God's will in the face of evil, uh, in the face of a culture that resisted the kingdom of God. I mean, Jesus, they put you to death. So Lord, would you give us resilience, make us firm in our faith. Lord, help us to humble ourselves even more as the culture pushes back on our Christian values. And Lord, help us to, to live more and more like Jesus and to glorify you for your kingdom, your dominion is forever and ever. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Okay, our big idea is that as resilient Christians, we're to be humble, sober-minded, alert. Uh, resilient Christians resist the devil and they wait for God to deliver them. We're just gonna walk through these one at a time and apply them. Number one, resilient Christians are humble. Again, he quotes Proverbs 3, 34. It says, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. We are to humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God. Because God is powerful. He's far more powerful than we can even imagine. Even the stories in Scripture that we read of should humble us. Our encounters with God should humble us. He is the all-powerful, eternal God of the universe, we are finite, fallible human creatures. But in the beauty of this, when we humble ourselves, the promise is that God will exalt us <laughs> and God will lift us up. And so we wait for him. We wait for him. Humility um, is one of those terms that <laughs> can reference this little book by Tim Keller. Uh, it's called The Freedom of Self-Forgetfulness. Uh, he says he hates the word humility, and for good reason, uh, because it's so misconstrued today, right? We talk about humility, and we all have these like, different concepts of what it means in our minds. Humility, as has been said in kind of a summary of C.S. Lewis's teaching, is not thinking less of yourself. It is just thinking of yourself less. And that's why Tim Keller describes it as the freedom of self-forgetfulness. <laughs> Think about it. The two greatest commands that Jesus calls us to are to love God and love others. Love, by nature, means you are just not thinking about yourself as much. <laughs> You're thinking about God more. You are thinking about others more, right? In our secular world, the solution to low self-esteem is higher self-esteem and pride. Keller says that will not do. That's not the solution, right? Because we all know people who are prideful, and we know that that's not the answer either. If you keep elevating self-esteem to the point of pride, then, well, that's not what we're shooting for, right? Because that is the antithesis to humility, and if God exists, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Like, that's not what we want either, right? So instead, the solution is to view ourselves the way God views us. No more, no less. 
to know God, to think with a clear mind. That means knowing the way God views you. We're going to talk about that in Identity 101, Soul Care 101. View yourself the way God views you, no more, no less. And then enjoy the freedom of humility and self-forgetfulness. In that book, Keller has this relatively long quote. I'm going to spend the most time on humility because uh, Peter mentions it twice here. He has this long quote, so forgive me, I didn't put it up on the screen, but just follow along as I read it. Friends, he says, wouldn't you want to be a person who does not need honor, nor is afraid of it? Someone who does not lust for recognition, nor on the other hand is frightened to death of it. Don't you want to be the kind of person who, when they see themselves in a mirror or reflected in a shop window, does not admire what they see, but does not cringe either? Wouldn't you like to be the type of person who, in their imaginary life, does not sit around fantasizing about hitting self-esteem home runs, daydreaming about successes that gives them the edge over others? Or perhaps you tend to beat yourself up to be tormented by regrets. Wouldn't you like to be free of them? Wouldn't you like to be the skater who wins the silver and yet is thrilled about those three triple jumps that the gold medal winner did? To love it the way you love a sunrise just to love the fact that it was done. For it not to matter whether it was their success or your success, not to care if they did it or you did it. You are as happy that they did it as if you had done it yourself because you are just so happy to see it. Wouldn't you like to be that type of person? That is the freedom that comes in self-forgetfulness. There's a real freedom there. And it's totally counterintuitive to everything our nature says, to everything our culture and the world says. So if we are to live in the way of Jesus, this is one of the cultural pressures that is pressing against us in the way of Jesus all the time. We are to love God, love others, and live in the freedom of humility and self-forgetfulness. Humility frees us from constantly being offended and having to be defensive about everything, right? It frees you from the endless concern of self-image and self-promotion. It frees you from the endless pursuit and subsequent disappointment of success. <laughs> We've all been there, right? Something you've been chasing forever, you finally accomplish it, you get it, and then it's like, eh, now we need the next thing, right? <laughs> and then it's on to the next one. It's fleeting. It is an essential aspect of living the abundant life of Christ. And as a part of this humble life, we're to cast our anxieties upon God. Casting your anxieties upon God and living a humble life are interwoven. They are one and the same. Because most of our anxiety comes from our desire to control, right? We're trying to control things that we can't. And so we're anxious about them. And so in those things that we can't control, we must cast them upon God and give them to him. And I love how Peter organizes this, how he talks about God's mighty hand. Right? We're to humble ourselves before the mighty hand of God. And it's, <laughs> kind of think of that as a thing to just be feared. It's not only a thing to be feared, it's a thing to be appreciated and cherished as well. That God is powerful, that God is strong, that God is able. <laughs> our family have this epic story that we tell over and over again, where Savannah, uh, my wife, was carrying this pretty big Adirondack chair up to our uh, on the front porch. And it was heavy. And I was like walking alongside her. I was carrying something else, but it was fairly light. And I'm like, babe, you want me to help you? Um, and she was like just about to say yes, or she was saying like, yes, please take this. 
when my daughter Ellie was sitting on the front porch watching all of this unfold, and she was eight at the time, like last year. And she, <laughs> she said it exactly like this. She goes, Mama, you don't need no man. <laughs> and, and, and poor Savannah, she was stuck at that point. She's like, uh, she's like, I kind of want a man, Ellie, to help me carry this right now. But just to prove to you that I can be strong and do things too, like, I'll carry it. And she did. She toughed it out. She carried it up there. Um, so that's a running joke in our home is, Mama, you don't need no man. <laughs> but, but that serves like the picture of the, that's the picture that we're going for, right? Is like, like we're carrying all of these heavy burdens on our shoulders. Like when the God of the universe who created everything, who's the all-powerful creator, who cares for you and loves you, he wants to help you. He wants you to give you those burdens and for you to stop carrying them because you can't control all of these things and yet you carry the burdens of them. And if God cares for you and he loves you like that and he's really that strong and he's really that powerful and he, you can't really control the outcomes, why, why are you trying to still? God's saying, give them to me. Let me carry them. My shoulders are big enough. Yours aren't. He's strong enough. You're not. So cast your anxieties upon him because he cares for you. Cast your anxieties upon him because he cares for you. Stop toiling. Stop the constant struggle of trying to appease your anxieties or to accomplish and control things that you cannot control. God cares for you. Run to him with your anxieties. Surrender them to him. It's part of being humble. Now briefly... Resilient Christians, they think clearly and they recognize spiritual dangers. We need to know the way of Jesus so well. We need to stay alert to the spiritual war that's happening all around us, to the ways that the devil tries to influence us, whether it's through culture, through direct spiritual attacks, through all of this stuff. Satan is crafty, he is deceitful, and he's pretty good at what he does. And so we need to resist him. We need to resist the devil. Remember, Peter says that believers all over the world are experiencing the same type of pressures to conform to the culture against the way of Jesus that his readers were experiencing. They were being pressured to deny Jesus and pledge their allegiance to Caesar. Sometimes the attacks of the enemy come in those cultural forms. And in our day, he has lulled us to sleep effectively in the church with good things that become God things. And they begin to hold the seat that only God belongs in in our heart. The object of our primary devotion and affection. These examples, it's not wrong to have strong political opinions, but if it leads you to hate and slander your enemies, then it becomes sin. It's not wrong to give your kids opportunities to succeed, but if it leads you to idolize your family and neglect your church family, it's become sin. It's not wrong to save for retirement, but if it leads you to fail to be generous or to trust God with everything and all that you have, it becomes sin. And so we have been lulled to sleep by the subtleties of Satan's work in our culture. And so we need to firm our faith up. We need to have a strong, resilient faith that resists the devil and his temptations 
And we need to, as Peter has said before, put our hope fully, fully, not partially, not as like a part of my life, that I go to church, I give Jesus some of this, like I'm made with Jesus, but this is a part of my life. No, your hope is to be fully, fully in the grace that will be brought to you at the return of Jesus. Because his dominion, his power, his glory is forever and ever. Nothing else can compare, so why would we put our hope in anything else? When we have Jesus, when we have eternity, we have the eternal God, the all-powerful God. And then we wait for God's deliverance. We don't deliver ourselves. God is faithful. Remember, we are to entrust ourselves to our faithful creator and continue to do good. I keep saying that because I want you guys to remember that line. <laughs> I want that to stick in your mind, <laughs> to entrust yourself to God who judges justly and entrust yourself to our faithful creator and continue to do good. That's how we live a resilient faith and resist the devil. God will deliver. He has proven to be faithful time and time again throughout history at dark moments in the people of Israel's history. We can trust him. He's faithful. I'll leave you with the words of Psalm 27, 13 to 14. I think this, this is the cry of, of our hearts, so many of us. I believe that I will look upon the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. I believe that I will see God's goodness here in Burlington go viral. <laughs> I believe that I will see God's goodness in my family, or in my church, in my place of work. I believe that I'll see it. Wait for the Lord, the psalmist says. Be strong, <laughs> resilient faith, and let your heart take courage and wait for the Lord. Sometimes it takes more courage to wait patiently and continue doing good than it does to say, I'm going to go fix it. <laughs> Just wait for the Lord. His deliverance will be better than we could do in and of ourselves. We're going to celebrate communion now. And what we're celebrating in communion is the deliverance, the salvation of God. Who could have foreseen that God would bring his deliverance in the way that he did with Jesus? Who could have foreseen that the king of all the world is the crucified savior, the suffering servant? And yet that was God's plan of salvation, to redeem his people, to set us free from our sin, to deliver us from the effects of sin and evil in this world. And so every time we take communion, we're remembering that God's ways are higher than our ways. And so we entrust ourselves to him and we continue to do good.